Lord, we do praise you, particularly that uh, you have called us to yourself, and you've revealed yourself to us. You continually reveal yourself through your word. We desire to be devoted to your word, that we may gain your insight and view things from your perspective, understand all the things that uh, you desire us to know, to understand your perspective. And as we look into your word today, we desire that it be clear to us that uh, you open it up, that our minds would not just understand, but would appreciate what you've done and uh, go out from here transformed and with a desire to share what you have revealed to us with those around us. So we commit our time to you, asking that uh, if there's anything that uh, detracts from that or sin that may be present, we would confess that and be in full fellowship to gain the full benefit of what pray these things in Jesus' name. Book of Romans. Gave you a little introduction last time. Sometimes it's hard to understand some passages, particularly theological passages, if you don't have a little bit of uh, background on some underlying ideas or theology that sometimes writers assume you might know, like Paul. So what I'm going to do is just give you a quick review of it, and then we'll move into verse 1, and if everything goes rapidly, we might even get into verse 2. But uh, there some explanation concerning context that will help in understanding the passage. And there's some direct applications we can draw as well, so we'll do that. So you want to put yourself back into the city of Rome in the first century, and as was prayed, the culture now in our culture is not too much different, but Paul is writing to the church at Rome, or the churches. There seem to be several house churches, and there were a multitude of churches there, and the estimates vary concerning the size of the total body that is residing in the city of Rome. And if you visit the site or city, you can see the archaeological remains of the first century city in the photograph there. It's always good to get the big picture of where a passage fits in with the rest of Scripture. And with respect to this passage, I mentioned last week that we have kind of a, or at least I see a parallel between this chapter and chapter 1, particularly beginning in verse 18. This portion has four parts to it. I'm only going to show three because the other one is a ways away. But chapter 1, I broke it down into three parts, if you remember. Remember the first part, beginning in verse 18, 118? Remember how I titled that? Mankind under wrath. Mankind under wrath. This one is similar. He starts off by laying out a predicament of a particular mindset, if you will, if not even a particular group that existed in the first century, And I think he begins in chapter 2, even though the commentators kind of debate that and go back and forth on that. But I think he begins a new section in verse 1, because of this parallelism that I see at least. And he's laying out the predicament of a different group. They are still under wrath. In fact, I think the therefore of verse 1 goes back to the idea that these people are under wrath as well, for slightly different reasons ultimately sin itself. So he lays out a predicament of the self-righteous. In other words, those that look down upon others, at least in the spiritual, and they think, and I think it's a Jewish audience. Now, this is not anti-Semitic. Remember, Paul is a Jew. What Paul is doing is trying to convince this audience that they have a Pharisaic attitude. He's dealing with the same kind of mindset that Jesus dealt with. Certainly Jesus wasn't anti-Semitic, and neither is Paul. So he's dealing with a group of people that come from probably a Jewish community that said, well, we have the law, we have the promises, we have all the covenants, we are the children of God, we are the called, we are the elect, we are the special group. God has uh, shown favor to us throughout history, 
So we kind of fall into a different category than those depraved Gentiles. And you can almost hear them in the background saying, preach it, Paul. Those Gentiles, they're depraved. They're under God's wrath. They're sinners. They're without excuse. They, in fact, you have this long description in uh, verses, what is it, what was it, uh, 20, 29 through 31. Yep, those are those Gentiles, but uh, we're a different group. So he has to kind of awaken them. You're not that much different. And we'll look at that from that verse. So he gives a predicament of that mindset. And then we have a second section, just like we did in chapter 1. We had verses 19 through 23. Where under that, he's giving the reasons, in chapter 1, the reasons why mankind is under wrath. Similarly, in chapter 2, we have the principles of judgment. So he's using a different approach for a Jewish mindset. They were familiar with the law. They knew about God's justice. It's laid out very clearly in the Old Testament. So now he's bringing to the surface these principles that they should be aware of to reinforce the idea that they also are without excuse. See the parallelism there? In verse 20 in chapter 1, the Gentiles are without excuse because God has revealed himself to every individual on the face of the earth that has ever lived and will continue to reveal because of the nature of that revelation. That's general revelation. So also a Jewish mindset, they have revelation. They have the law that lays out particular issues and particular issues relating to judgment. So he's going to give us those principles beginning in verse 2. And then he has a section beginning in verse 17 where he very clearly identifies his audience. And all of the commentators are kind of unified on that because he, (laughs) he names them by name. You Jew. See that in verse 17? So 17 through 29, he's going to give evidence or proof that uh, they also are without excuse. So that's kind of the big picture of those three sections. Now, back in chapter 1, the parallelism is after he lays out the reasons why mankind is under wrath, again, he's giving evidence for not only the reasons for that, but he's showing that that wrath is made visible. In other words, it's a present tense wrath, and you can see it. And he lays that out. God has abandoned them. He has allowed them. He's taken the restraints off, the restraints of sin, and allowed the old nature to produce what the old nature will inevitably and normally and naturally will produce. And that that destroys people. If old nature is allowed without restraint, people end up destroyed. Not only temporally, but eventually, spiritually, and eternally as well. So now in verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, we have the proof of the Jewish guilt. So he's going to lay out the evidence for that and the reasons why he comes to that conclusion. Then there's a fourth group that we'll talk about later in chapter 3. What did we say? We estimated a couple of years from now or so. So let me give, give you a quick review. We talked about the justice of God last time. I gave you an introduction And I mentioned that all of us yearn for God's justice. If you've been robbed, you want justice. If somebody has broken into your house, you want whoever did that to return the property. You want things to be made right. And that's what God's justice is all about. He is making right. And I took us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God announces that ultimately he is going to deal with the issue of sin and evil. He is ultimately going to make things right. In this world, we don't experience justice. People malign us, people, we might even experience persecution, we might get robbed, we might get beat up, whatever. We're not to expect justice in this life, in this world, but God ultimately is going to effect justice, and we yearn for it. I gave you the illustration of little kids. You see it in them. Give one of them a candy bar and not the other one. They want justice. They want equality there. They want a candy bar as well. And if not, you have a riot on your hands, right? 
I also gave you the illustration, if you have a bowl of chariots, we judge all the time. We enter into this idea of justice all the time. It's not directly, but it's the same concept of what God is doing. You have a bowl of cherries, and you see one of them rotting a little bit. We had the example, Linda was the example that she gave. She throws the whole bowl out. She's total justice. She's absolute justice. Throw it all out. Some of you said, well, I'd eat it. Well, yeah, but (laughs) most people will what? Separate out that cherry or that peach that is rotting, that is decaying, in order to what? Preserve the rest. That is what God's judgment is all about. He is removing or dealing with that that destroys in order to preserve that that he loves. And you see that in every judgment. Almost every judgment, you have, it's an example of not only wrath poured out upon that that is destroying, but you also have salvation or escape or some way that God preserves that that he, that he loves. So you see that in every case that you have judgment. So you have those two elements, God separating out that that destroys from that that, that we love. So God's justice also has the element of grace. There's always grace involved. It's not just pure and absolute justice where you throw the whole thing out, but you preserve that that you care for or desire to preserve. So that's God's justice. So the grace element is God is preserving, and we yearn that things be made right, and the Bible gives us assurance that ultimately God will, in fact, effect justice and make things right. And I think that's what heaven is all about, where God meets out ultimate justice and also not only reward but blessing for those that he calls to himself. So that's a little bit of the concept of, of justice in the Bible. We want it, we yearn for it, but we also fear it, because, and in some ways, we don't want it in terms of ourselves because we stand condemned. And that's the point of the early chapters of the book of Romans. We need a solution outside of ourselves, and the only solution is what Christ has done for us. So we yearn for it and want it, and at the same time, fear it. We can think of it as God has absolute right and authority over his creatures to deal with them as he sees fit. And he's a just God, so he's going to deal with his creatures in terms of justice. W.G.T. Shedd says, Justice is that phase of God's holiness, which is seen in his treatment of the obedient and the disobedient subjects of his government. Theological definition or description of the justice of God. We said last time that God acts sovereignly. In other words... He has total control over the universe. He's ultimate judge. And we're going to see in the Romans passage, one of the principles is no one escapes it. It's inescapable. He's also a good God, and justice is an expression of his goodness as well, because he's preserving. He's acting such that he is removing, in some cases, the injustice and the effects of injustice. He also acts in wisdom. He judges wisely. It's not disproportionate. We'll also see another principle relating to wisdom. It's impartial. It's impartial. And actually the first principle we'll look at in verse 2, it's according to truth. So we'll look at that when we get to that point. It also is affected with power. And you can see the examples of that in the Old Testament where God brought a flood that destroyed the entire world of that time. Tremendous power displayed in the Genesis flood. And throughout history, God has displayed power, Sodom and Gomorrah, power falling out of the heavens, and other examples as well. It's also always righteous. In other words, it's according to his standards, his righteous standards. In fact, the concept of righteousness, let me remind you, we've already been introduced to it, and we talked a little bit about it. Let me just remind you of the words that are involved and the concept. 
The most common theological word in the book of Romans is the word righteousness and its roots and the words related to the concept of righteousness. Righteousness is nothing more than a right standing. That's a good way of thinking about it. And in the case, theologically, it's a right standing before God. And our righteousness, in other words, our righteousness, what is Isaiah, how does he describe it? Are as, as filthy rags. And it's actually X-rated in the Hebrew text. It's referring to menstrual rags. That's our righteousness. So we have no standing. We have no righteousness. We are offensive, if you will, in terms of God because of sin. And there's nothing that we can do to establish that righteousness. We'd have to live a perfect life. And even if you started with a perfect life, we've already failed because we didn't have a perfect life before. So you'd have to start with a perfect life and live without sin from then on out. And even then we'd fall short because of our past. So we have no standing. We have no righteousness. The Greek words relating to that is dikaios, is the noun, and it's translated sometimes righteous. A person that is righteous has a proper or a legal standing, a good legal standing before a holy God. That's the idea. In other words, we are viewed from the judge, from God's perspective, as absolutely as righteous as Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross and we accepted that gift, he imputed, Paul's going to talk about this later on in Romans, he put to our account, our account was bankrupt, it was empty. In fact, it was negative. It had a negative value in it. God substituted, removed that negative, and God added righteousness to our bank account, if you will, if you want to use that analogy. And now when God looks at us, those that have trusted in Christ, he looks at us as if we were as sinless as Jesus Christ. He looks at us as if we are perfection. We are not, and Christian life is the process of being more and more like Jesus Christ, Christ Christ-like. But in terms of God's justice, the word is we have been justified. In other words, he has declared us righteous. And we have a standing, a legal standing before God of righteousness. Even though as long as we have the old nature... In terms of our experience, it's not there yet. It'll get there in the future. So that's the noun form. There's a verb or a, an adjectival form, dikaiosene, uh, righteousness. It's an adjective. Well, is it a noun? Well, it can be. It depends on the context. Noun and righteousness. Both of them are similar. Righteous or righteousness. And then there's obviously a verb form, dikaiao. The idea to justify or to declare righteous or to impute, in other words, put to one's account a right standing. And that comes only on the basis of what Jesus did. He paid the penalty of our crime. He paid the penalty of our sin. And God, as absolute judge, can now, from his judgment seat, pronounce us as if we had not sinned. And that's a right standing. It's not that we got off the hook. Somebody else took the penalty. That's the significance of the death of Christ. He bore what we and I deserve to bear on the cross. And that's true of all of humanity. So that's the verb. And in the Old Testament, we have sadak. That's how you pronounce that. Sadak or sadak to be righteous, and then it has all its different forms. If you just put different pointings on there, you can get the noun form as well. And it's a very common word in the Old Testament. The Jewish people would have been very familiar with that concept, even though some of their interpreters and their own thinking had clouded those issues and uh, didn't see things clearly, and Paul's going to make those things clear. 
So we're looking at God providing this righteousness, beginning in verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 8. But before we can understand how we receive this righteousness, he has to convince us that we don't have it, that we are lost, that we are unrighteous. And he starts that in chapter 1, verse 18, and now to a different audience, he's going to explain it beginning in chapter 2. So we have the guilt of humanity, chapter 1, now the guilt of the Jews, chapter 2, 1 through 3, 8. And we left off with the predicament, beginning in verse 1, of those that have this attitude. Well, we've got everything that we need. We're born into it. We have the law. We have covenants. We have God's grace. So we're okay. And what he's going to say in verse 1, therefore, and it's a complete sentence, so I like to start off. We speak sentence or we teach sentence by sentence, not verse by verse, but sentence by sentence. In this case, it's the same. Verse 1 is one sentence. A lot of times we have, sometimes in Paul, particularly several verses before he gets to the end of the sentence. So here's the sentence, and we saw last time. The first independent clause is, therefore, you have no excuse. Everything else is going to expand and tell us something about this not having an excuse. So let's talk about it. The therefore there, the terms of verse 1, D-O is the Greek word. It's not a common word for therefore. In fact, the tension is called to it, and it probably goes back to the other one that is in chapter 1, verse 24, therefore. And it almost seems like he's picking up from what he said in chapter 1 concerning the Gentiles. In other words, you are without excuse, Gentiles. And he gave the reasons for that all the way to verse 23. And then in verse 24, he says, therefore, you can see God's wrath. And now he picks up, I think, in verse 1 with another, therefore, using the same particle as he does in verse 24, which is not the common one. So I think there's some of that parallelism that I was mentioning. And then he says, you are without excuse. But before we look at that word, you need to understand... There's a Greek word that's very common, apologia, apologia, that's how you pronounce that. Got it in parentheses there, the transliteration. It has the idea of a defense. It can be used in a courtroom, in other words, to present a defense in a court. It can be used in the sense of defending oneself from accusations or maligning words that people might say about us, and you say, well, that's not true, you make a defense. Uh, You see Paul giving a defense before the the Jewish people, uh, giving basically his testimony that uh, he's not a criminal, he, in fact, is simply doing what God has called him to do. So he gives a defense. It's a real common word. Sometimes it's used in the sense of apologetics, (laughs) to give a defense of the faith, in which... What is it, First Peter, what is it, uh, 2.15? Or is it 3.15? I can't remember. 2.15, I believe. Where we are to give a defense to those that ask. And we're supposed to do it in a godly way, with gentleness, etc. In other words, it's not a big fight. It's a, it's a defense in order that people know the hope that is in us. That's apologia. In this passage, we have the negation of that. In other words, he is saying, and it's translated, you are without excuse. It's the same word that he accused the Gentiles in uh, verse 20. Therefore, you are without excuse. Same word. In other words, you don't have a case. Your case is so flimsy, we throw it out of court. There's no case here. We're not even going to try it. It it is just... it's. uh, Frivolous. It's a frivolous case. It's, you are without a case. You have no standing. You have no defense. Your defense is too weak to even be considered. They are without a defense. Zero. In other words, the judge asks, well, what evidence do you have to present? Zero evidence. No evidence of innocence. They are without excuse. And you can see that within the word, it's anapologetas, you can see that apologia in there. 
And then when you have an alpha preceding, it negates it. And since you don't want to have two alphas, one after the other, you have unapologetas. So it negates it. You are, instead of having a defense, you don't have a defense. You got that? And it's only, this word only occurs right here in verse 1 and verse 20 of chapter 1. So it kind of calls attention to itself. And remember, I've been saying all along in the book of Romans, there's lots of legal terms. You need to put yourself in a courtroom and think in terms of legal concepts. Paul is using words that were very common in that culture that were used in the courts in a legal context. Where else did you say it was? Verse 20 of chapter 1. It's the only other location in the New Testament. And in that place, remember... The Gentiles, you are without excuse. Now that this other audience, they are without excuse as well. Now, who are the ones that are without excuse? Every one of you who passes judgment. Every one of you who passes judgment. In other words, everyone who puts himself in the place of a judge and now is condemning others. And the word there is krino, very common. Again, this is a word of the court's. Crino, it's a verb, to judge. Now, it can be used in kind of a wide spectrum of usages. Underlying all of those usages is the idea to judge. It's used in reference to judging in a courtroom, in other words, legally, where judgment is pronounced. After all of the evidence is reviewed, here is the decision of the court. In our system, here's the decision of the jury. In terms of God, he is both judge and jury. This is his judgment, and it's legal. And it's used of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He was tried. He was arrested, and he was tried, and he was pronounced guilty. And even though he was falsely charged because he was without sin, but he went through a court process. The Jews pronounced him that he's not the Messiah. And the penalty for blasphemy, in other words, that's blasphemy, penalty for that is death. And he was turned over to the Romans. The Romans actually couldn't find any guilt. Remember, Pilate wanted to let him loose, and the crowd cried. So it was a political decision, not a judicial decision. The Romans... Wanted to let him go. They didn't have enough evidence because there's no evidence. But they tried it. So it's used of Jesus Christ. It's also used in a common everyday sense. We make judgments all the time. In other words, we make decisions. I want this instead of this. I want uh, to do something on this date rather than on this other date. I want to take this client rather than this client. I might decline that. Or in my case, I evaluate prospective tenants. By the way, I have a vacancy if anyone's interested. (laughs) I have them fill out an application. I go through and I look for certain things to make sure I have good tenants. And I make decisions. I make judgments. That's good. In fact, we are to make decisions. In other words, we are to discern this is evil, this is bad. I don't want to do that because there's consequences and because God has told me those consequences. So I make a judgment, I I need to make a decision to do what is right. So it's used in that, that everyday sense, just to make a judgment, just to decide something. And I can give you examples of that from, uh, from the scriptures if I could see my notes. but Anyway, the way it's used in this context is to judge in a condemning sense. And it's used more in a broader sense, but more in terms of our attitude towards other people, and we look down upon them, we are better than them. Our sin is not as bad as their sin. And we even overlook our own sin. Me sin? What? What? But we are quick to see the sin of others, and we condemn them for it. This is the Pharisaic idea that Jesus dealt with. He saw them doing the very same thing. In fact, this is what Paul observes as well. 
So it's to judge in a condemning sense. And in our case, it's oftentimes hypocritical. So to hypocritically put oneself in the place of a judge. In other words, the judge is just as guilty as those he is judging. And I'm putting myself in a position of a judge, ignoring my sin, and that makes it hypocritical. That's what he's talking about in this context. And by the way, that is what Jesus is talking about in uh, the, the kind of the work, very well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll look at it as well. We'll look up that one. In fact, the unbeliever, their favorite verse is probably Matthew uh, 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Every unbeliever knows what? That's right. They know that verse. They memorize. That's their memory verse. (laughs) They've got it memorized. (laughs) So the question to ask is, in what way is the Bible talking about, not only in this context, but what context that Jesus is speaking of as well? Does this prohibit all judgment? I just kind of gave you the hint that it doesn't. In other words, we need to make judgments. We need to discern. Part of discernment is making judgments. In other words, this is good, this is bad. We need to do that. In fact, we're commanded to. So let's look up some passages that relate to that. He's not talking about a first category of judging. So he's not speaking in an absolute sense. He's using in the sense of judging in a condemning sense and doing that hypocritical. That is what he's talking about. In fact, he reprimands some believers for not judging. And let's look up some of those passages. So when somebody says, stop judging, the unbeliever says, don't judge me. And sometimes we do that with a bad attitude as well. Or other believers, you know, if we're condemning them, if we have a bad attitude, that's what Paul's talking about. But there are places where we do correct one another. We do pass judgment, and you could say that there's a right way, or judging rightly. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3. Somebody got it? Connie's got it. Somebody else? Well, yeah, somebody else look up chapter 6, same chapter. And these are just a few. These are probably the ones that are clearest. You got Galatians, or you got 1 Corinthians 6. Somebody got Galatians 6, 1. Mary Lee. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3. Let me give you the context of that. At the church at Corinth, can you believe it? There were some some believers, and I have no reason to doubt their salvation. A lot of reasons in 1 Corinthians. I think he's dealing with Christians that are falling into different sin. There was a situation where there was a couple, I guess you could call them, an incestuous relationship. In other words, a relationship within a family. And it's believed uh, probably a mother and a son involved here that are involved in that incestuous relationship. Notice what Paul says, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality and such sexually as is not even Gentile. Okay, sexual immorality among the Corinthians amongst those that are claiming to be believers. In fact, to such an extent that it's even perverted amongst the Gentiles. Keep reading. That a man has his father's wife. There you go. A man has his father's wife. That's the incestuous relationship. And you were puffed up, and having not rather mourned that was done this deed might be taken you. Okay, he's addressing the church at Corinth. You did not deal with this. We won't read all of the verses, but if you read on, for example, I'll have you read, skip after you read verse 3, we'll skip to verse 7. For indeed is absent in the body, but in the spirit. For I indeed have already judged as though I were praying. Paul has already pronounced judgment. Is Paul violating his own words in uh, Romans 2? No. There's a right judgment that needs to be made to protect the church at Corinth or any church. He has judged, and he's reprimanding them for not intervening and dealing with the situation. Yeah, did you finish verse 3 there? Yes. Skip to verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you knew love, since you truly are unleavened. 
Christ, our Passover was sacrificed. Okay, he's judging the Corinthians. And he's reprimanding them. They need to get rid of the leaven. And he's in this context, he's talking about the situation. They need to deal with that situation. In another context, they had another problem at Corinth. In fact, Corinth, there's all kinds of problems. Not only was there an incestuous relationship, but people were going to the secular courts, suing one another, rather than dealing with them within the church. And Paul is going to judge them for it and reprimand them. He's judging them rightly to protect them. Remember what judgment is. It's separating out that that destroys from that that God wants to preserve. And we are called upon to intervene sometimes in situations where people are destroying themselves. Now, we don't do it in a self-righteous, condemning way. We do it in a different attitude. We do it with a loving and a caring and a gentle way, but we do it with the motive to preserve them. You see that? And who's got, uh, you got... Uh, Dear any of you, have go to law with the unrighteous. Okay, there's the point. In other words, they're going to law or they're going, they're taking, they're suing people. They're taking them to court. Uh, the Gentiles, keep reading. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you unworthy, judge the smallest matters. Do you not know that we shall judge how much more things to this life? Then you have judgments concerning things... You appoint those who are least esteemed in the church to judge. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who brethren? Do you notice? Paul is judging the church at Corinth for not taking these issues and dealing with them internally, basically. He's reprimanding them. It's a reprimand. But he also gives us some insight there. We are going to be judges in the future. So start practicing it, but practice it rightly. We are going to what? Judge what? Angels. angels. Can you imagine that? Believers are going to judge angels. This is future. We're going to participate in God's judgment. So in Romans 2.1, he's not talking absolutely. He's talking about judging in certain ways, certain manners. And I think he's dealing with that mainly. And not only are we going to judge angels, but what else are we going to judge? What did, what did the context say? I'm sorry. Uh, nations, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to judge, or the world. Yeah, yeah, we're going to participate in God's judgment. So we need to learn how to do it. He's reprimanding the Corinthians for not doing it. In other words, isn't there anyone in your body that has discernment, that has wisdom, that can make these decisions? He's reprimanding the leadership of that church for not judging. You see that? How about Galatians 6.1? This is a broader one, and it's a, kind of almost a command to the believer. Mary Lee? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be We should be looking after one another in a spirit of gentleness and also with a loving attitude because sin destroys, and we want to protect each other. That's a command. That's a, an exhortation. Now, he's going to give some reasons and some argument further on, but the point being, he's not saying that judging is absolutely prohibited. It's a particular kind of judging. In fact, we won't look this one up, but for your notes, we are to judge ourselves. So he's not condemning self-judgment. In other words, we should be constantly evaluating Am I in sin? Is this wrong? And do I need to change course? Or do I need to make dif different decisions here? We need to judge. Uh, we need to look in inwardly. And you see hints of that also in uh, Matthew 7 and somewhat implied in Romans 2 as well. So judging yourself. So he's not speaking absolutely here. What he is dealing with is judging sinfully. So there's a right way to judge. And there is a wrong way as well, or a sinful way, and that's the Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And even there, he's not prohibiting judgment absolutely, but he's identifying the kind of judgment. Now, we could summarize this, judging sinfully. That's how you look when you uh, judge in a wrong way, by the way. 
That's a mirror. <laughs> in a condemning way, putting ourselves in the position of a judge, hypocritically, in other words, we do the same thing, and the passage is going to identify that, or even if it's rightfully but without love. In other words, it's, you know, it's, it's not with, with love. We should do it with love. And sometimes we just want to get even with someone else. Spitefully, that's wrong. I think that is what is in view in Romans. That is what is in view in Matthew 7. Setting oneself above another. Oh, I'm better than you. You know, my sin isn't as bad as your sin. Sixth, with a critical spirit. In other words, some people are just inclined in that direction and they're critical of everything. Critical spirit. That's judging sinfully. That is what is in view. Keep that in mind. So when somebody quotes you, thou shalt not judge, just be reminded, okay, am I loving? Am I interested in their well-being? Am I obedient in terms of trying to do something to keep this person from destroying themselves? Well, respond in love, take it in and say, well, this is part of my self-judgment. Do they have a case here? In other words, is there something that I'm doing that may be causing... No, no. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And notice, therefore you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge... Verse 1, in that you judge. In other words, you have enough information to make a judgment. And there are a lot of things that the unbeliever has a sense of. And he's condemning an unbeliever here. He's condemning, even though they may be Jewish, they're not necessarily born again. But they have, the unbeliever has lots of insight, lots of knowledge. You and I need to keep this in mind when we share the gospel with people. People already have a lot of information. God has already revealed a lot of things to the unbeliever. And I just got a list here from chapter 1. Remember in verse 19, remember how verse 19 goes? They know God. They know at least the existence of God. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. The unbeliever knows in the existence of God. When we were in that passage, I kept making the point, there is no such thing, in reality, there's no such thing as an atheist. An atheist is someone who has suppressed the truth, verse 18, to such a point that they have convinced themselves. So they have deceived themselves into believing that there is no God. That's an atheist. But deep down, it is as a result of suppressing the truth that God has already put within them. Keep that in mind. Every unbeliever knows that there's a God. You don't have to explain or prove that there's a God. They know it. Verse 19, verse 20 reinforces that. They also know some of the attributes of God. That's verse 20. What do they know? Eternal attributes, specifically his power. They can observe that if they know anything about the universe or can observe things in the natural realm. They also know that that makes them accountable to God. That revelation, that's why he says at the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. The unbeliever knows this. The unbeliever also, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is saying to the Jews, you have special revelation, and you may be an unbeliever, but you know the standards of God. And even when we get to verses, what is it, 12 through 14, even the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, or at least something of the law. So they have God's standards Every unbeliever understands God's standards. They know. That's what it says in uh, verse 1. Also, they know that they stand condemned. There's condemnation. If you go all the way back to the very first sin, you can see that Adam and Eve, now they're unbelievers, basically. They are dead in their sin and their trespasses. And what do they do? What's the first thing they do? 
Hide. They hide. What does that tell you? That Adam and Eve knew, and this is true of every unbeliever, they know what? That's one of the things they know, but preceding that, they know that there's a need for restoration because it also says they put on something to cover. Totally inadequate, self-made religion, but they know that there's something wrong with them and they have to do something to solve this problem of nakedness. So they have that sense already, immediately after sin. That's verse 7. And in verse 8, they sense guilt. They sense guilt, and that's clear in verse 8, chapter uh, Genesis 3, 8. They also have a sense of inadequacy. That's the nakedness again in verse 7, and then it's repeated in verse 10. So they know that there's something that makes them inadequate in the face of God. They have to hide. They have to run. They also suppress the truth. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.18, because now God is confronting them, and they're trying to get around the truth of their guilt by what? What do they do in verse 11? They blame, the man blames the woman, and ultimately he blames God, the woman that you gave me, God. If you had not given me this special person, I would not have sinned. That's the mindset. And the woman, she blames the serpent. So they're suppressing the truth already. They're suppressing the concept that they are guilty before a holy God. So the unbeliever has a sense of spiritual reality that's designed to awaken with them, first of all, a need for restoration, and ultimately for the only restoration is what God has provided, not anything that we can provide ourselves. So, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, and he's going to give a reason for that. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. You are aware of God's standards, so you're not innocent, not having knowledge, but because you have that awareness, now you are without a case, and as a result, you condemn yourselves. Now, there's another word here. Crino was the first word that we looked at. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. That's crino. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Same word, except it's intensified with a preposition. It's kata crino. You see the same see crino there? If I can get it there. See this part here? Same word. Preposition attached to it. It's another verb, but it intensifies it. Not only are you making a judgment, but now you are condemning yourself. Katakrino. Okay? And that word, katakrino, again it's used, Jesus was condemned. Katakrino is used. Secondly, there's many verses where God, and God has every right, because he's absolute sovereign over all his creatures. He has right to condemn because we are guilty. So there's a lot of passages that speak of God as condemning and judging people. And in this context, it's talking about men condemning, and it's prohibiting that putting ourselves in a position of God himself. And in this context, uh, those of us who do that, and all of us have done it at some point, we need to be reminded of it. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. And another reason for that, for you who judge, practice the same things. So there's the qualifier. In other words, you are guilty as well. That's why Jesus addressed the crowd, those of you that have no sin, can throw the first stone. So to judge correctly, we need to be in a right relationship. We need to be in fellowship with God. We need to be concerned for the other person. We need to have a loving attitude, not a critical spirit, not a condemning attitude, and certainly not doing the same thing. And in Matthew 7, what does he say? You're trying to take out the little tiny splinter out of somebody's eyes, but you have this steel eye beam that holds up this building sticking out of your eye. And that's the wrong way of condemning. You practice the same things. 
Um, isn't there a sense, <laughs> like if they say there are no absolute, they're not absolute. Like, yep. They just said one. So <laughs> there's a sense of, uh, in which if you are beyond having this field thing behind, uh-huh. which I think we should point. Right. I mean, it's good to see if you think. Yeah. If you are in that position, not having things to get you can see that, like, when that Christian calls me narrow-minded, you pictures. Mm-hmm. Well... You yeah, know, with, doing the same thing. with an unbeliever, a lot of times the better course of action is to be willing to receive the injustice. In other words, we're not going to see justice in the unbeliever. And we need to redirect our thinking in terms of what is best for them, what will witness to them, what will bring them to a point of knowing their sin. Well, in a sense, knowing where their position doesn't something. And I think if you have a relationship and you can go back and forth on that, I think you can do that. I think Charlie Clough says that that our our point of view gets swallowed up in the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, you can can surround their point of view. Right. Which is practice. Yeah, and he's talking about apologetics. Exactly. A way of doing apologetics. He's not necessarily talking about when we are in an unjust situation, when we're the recipient of that injustice. It's more when we are, have the opportunity to share the idea of why we have a, a hope. Well, that's probably a good place to stop since there's a period there. So let's uh, stop at the period and we'll pick up in verse 2 next week. Just a closing thought. We yearn for justice, right? Yet cannot stand before it, but we have received grace. So we can praise God for his grace. Those of you that went to Israel, see anything familiar there? Who wants to close with? Mary Lee. So, Father, it's a good thing there are 20, 20 verses before you. I'm thankful for that, before, for reminding us what judging is and what is not. That, uh, for, too, for race, encouragement, times that, simply, that we simply will bear injustice as Christ for injustices because we are not of the world, just as he was not. The word has said that the world simply doesn't deal with those who know you. Tenets of this, this present age. So Father, we are grateful we are grateful that you enable us to make correct judgments, right judgments, with the right spirit, with the right attitude. A right standing for you as we seek face in these things. May we be part of your solution to our Father than a stumbling block to you and draw to yourself. We pray for your winds of spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.